0: Hi, I'm John Cooper. I am an orthopedic surgeon at Columbia University Medical Center, uh, where I'm an associate professor of orthopedic surgery. And I'm gonna spend the next hour talking about advancements in the use of closed incision negative pressure therapy uh, after total hip and total knee arthroplasty, which is my area of specialty. These are my disclosures. Relevant to this talk, I do have a consulting relationship with KCI, who is a manufacturer of uh, one particular um, disposable negative pressure uh, device. As some basic program information, you're approved for one CME, CNE, or AAPA credit uh, from uh, this webcast. You'll be redirected back to the landing page after the webcast to complete the post-test evaluation. Uh, You can then download or print your certificate from there. The program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC an HMP company, and this program is supported by an educational grant from KCI USA. We have five learning objectives. So The reason this topic is important really starts with the concept of teraprosthetic joint infection, which is one of the major, if not the worst, um, complications that we all try to avoid as uh, orthopedic providers. In an average population, this happens somewhere between one and 4% of the time, following primary, lower limb, total hip or total knee arthroplasties. But following revision surgery in some high-risk groups, this can occur upwards of 30% of the time. What's worse is that the incidence and prevalence is likely higher than believed, um, as many of these are undocumented. Our burden of periprostatic joint infection, unfortunately, is also increasing year over year. This is a study from uh, Steve Kurtz, published in 2012, looking at the uh, burden of uh, joint infection in the U.S. through 2010 with projection through 2020, and you can see that year over year over year uh, this is rising, and not surprisingly, the associated costs are also rising. One of the um, leading causes of uh, periprosthetic joint infection starts with incision healing, and incisions that don't heal well initially that have these delayed wound healing or uh, dehiscence, are things that we call a surgical site complication, and these have clearly been associated with a predisposition uh, to development of one of these periprosthetic joint infections. These are relatively common following elective total joint replacement, but unfortunately they're underreported in our orthopedic literature. Um, Not a lot of papers describe how often these happen. Um, There there are a lot of papers that focus on deep periprosthetic joint infection, but not many touch on these superficial surgical site complications, which are one of the clear risk factors. But those papers that do uh, put the incidence of these complications somewhere between 5 uh, and 15% of the time. For instance, this is a paper that we put together in 2016 with myself and um, and one of my partners, Jose Rodriguez. Uh, We looked at 650 of our own consecutive uh, anterior approach hip replacement patients, and we found that in our hands, 11.5% 11.5% of the time, uh, our patients were having a superficial surgical site complication, despite our best efforts to close the incision as well as we could uh, at the end of surgery. Now, most of these healed uneventfully on their own, but um, about 10% of those ended up back in the operating room for about a 2% reoperation rate, uh, specifically for the incisional complication itself. Not surprisingly, patients at risk for these were those who were obese or diabetic or who had had previous open hip surgery. Now, we like to think that these non-infectious wound complications, as long as they heal, don't have long-term negative effects on our patients. But this study from Washington University in St. Louis challenges uh, that thought. Um, This is a matched cohort series uh, looking at patients who were readmitted uh, within within the first 90 days of elective primary total knee arthroplasty. And what they found was that in patients who were readmitted with a non-infectious superficial surgical site complication, like drainage or wound dehiscence or a wound hematoma, um, these patients, when followed out to two years, actually ended up with lower knee society scores and higher rates of pain in their knee arthroplasty compared to a matched group that never had these uh, superficial wound complications. Um, So certainly uh, more than meets the eye with these. These unfortunately also have quite a cost to our healthcare system. It costs around $13,000 to treat a superficial surgical site infection on average. Um, and if a patient gets a deep periprosthetic joint infection, you can see the historical numbers. But in 2019, uh, the cost to treat a deep periprosthetic joint infection is almost always above $100,000. And a lot of this is in uh, the surgical costs, reoperation costs, implant costs. But there's a a fair bit of uh, spend in postoperative resource utilization for antibiotics, increased nursing care, increased uh, office visits, and and, um, uh, bringing additional specialists on board. Beyond that, there are soft costs, which aren't in these numbers, such as delayed return to work, decreased patient satisfaction, and of course, distress to the surgical team when we have patients calling us with draining incisions, with incisions that are red, or not healing well, um, n- nobody feels comfortable um, navigating these situations, and we all wish that these problems would, w- wouldn't happen. And finally, uh, an important thing to note is the rate of increased readmissions associated with these superficial surgical site complications. If you look at why patients are readmitted to the hospital following hip or knee replacement, um, there are lots of reasons that patients come back uh, to the emergency room or to the hospital postoperatively. Um, But this is one study that looks at the reasons that patients were readmitted, Um, and if you look at all the uh, potential causes, including medical complications, um, prosthesis-related complications like fracture or dislocation, uh, if you sort all those out, 50% of the unplanned readmissions are attributable to the surgical site itself, either divided between infectious or non-infectious wound complications. This is another study published in 2014 from the University of California, San Francisco, looking at the 90-day unplanned readmissions after primary elective total hip replacement. Um, And they found that when you looked at the rates of readmission for SSIs, draining wounds, wound dehiscence, cellulitis, and wound hematoma, and added those up, um, the surgical site was responsible for 48% of the unplanned readmissions. Um, So fully half of all unplanned readmissions Uh, are due to this uh, surgical site problem. And if we had a better way to manage these issues, um, we could make a real dent in this unplanned return to the emergency room or to the hospital after surgery. And that brings us to the concept of incision management. Now our standard of care historically has been um, passive therapy. And uh, when I trained and, and when many of you trained this typically consisted of uh, simply taking a, a piece of dry gauze, putting it over the incision, and using some tape or some, something to secure that gauze in place. And then on rounds, we would change that piece of gauze uh, on a daily basis when patients were in the hospital. I think most of us have moved on from this uh, dry gauze dressing to some of these um, you know, newer or more advanced passive therapy dressings. Uh, where we still close the incision and put something on top of that incision at the end of the case and wait for that to heal. But more often now we're using island dressings, uh, something like this silver impregnated hydrofiber dressing that you see in the top image, or skin glue uh, with or without these uh, elastic mesh tapes uh, that help hold the incision together. And the shift in this has come for a few reasons. Number one, these have been associated with better outcomes in our patients. But there's also been a a patient uh, perception that these are friendlier dressings that don't have to be changed on a daily basis. They're typically waterproof and many patients can uh, uh, return and take a shower uh, pretty immediately after surgery when they have one of these on, which obviously increases patient satisfaction uh, after surgery. And this is one of the big reasons these have been fairly widely adopted in hip or knee replacement surgery. Our standard of care uh, in hip or knee replacement, at least in my institution, uh, has become this dressing pictured, which is called the AquaCell AG. It's a uh, hydrofiber wound dressing that can absorb a fair bit of drainage from the incision. Uh, Inside that hydrofiber weave is ionic silver, uh, which acts as an an antimicrobial interface uh, to cover the incision. And this is a waterproof dressing that patients can shower with. Uh, the reason that we switched to this dressing uh, years ago was that it was associated with a decreased risk of joint infection uh, when used as a cover dressing following primary hip or knee replacement surgery at other institutions. And we certainly found that when we switched to it our, at our institution, as you see in the screen, um, there was a substantial decrease in infection rates uh, when switching from gauze uh, to the aqua cell. That being said, even though I used AquaCell in all my patients, I was continuing to have wound problems. And I wasn't continuing to have wound problems in the healthy patients with no comorbidities undergoing a fairly uncomplicated hip replacement or knee replacement. I was having persistent issues in patients who carried risk factors. The obese patients, as the one you see here, returning to the operating room about seven weeks after knee replacement with a wound complication. Um, These are a few images of some some of my hip replacement patients with superficial, and in the top left corner, a a deeper wound complication uh, that developed due to delayed wound healing. This is a um, elderly, malnourished, very thin patient that I was treating for an infected hip hemiarthroplasty. Uh, He was referred into our institution. Um, when he went to surgery for an explant in Spacer, um, surgery was uneventful, but you can see how um, much wound necrosis he has at the edge of his incision uh, in this fairly high risk patient. This is another delayed wound healing uh, in a patient with diabetes uh, following knee replacement. Um, this is another wound dehiscence in, in a very ill, uh, obese patient. Uh, undergoing a complica- complex revision surgery uh, with just very poor uh, wound healing. And I'll end on this one. This is, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, I have many more pictures like that to show in uh, my high-risk patients, but I'll end on this one. And I'm gonna end on this one because this is the case that in my practice caused me to change the way I approach these high-risk patients. So, th- so this is a, a 55-year-old um, truck driver who was a smoker who was referred to me with an infected knee replacement and it it wasn't a first-time infection he'd actually undergone um, about two years of treatment by his original surgeon uh, trying to eradicate an MRSA uh, MRSA infection uh, in his uh, revision knee replacement Uh, so he'd undergone uh, numerous surgeries and uh, ultimately three failed cycles of two stage exchanges. Um, He came to me for an attempt at limb salvage. Um, My initial recommendation was for an amputation in him, but given that he was a truck driver and he was relatively young, we talked about ways that we could perhaps save his limb. So we took him back to the operating room, number one after he stopped smoking, but we took him back to the operating room and uh, took out his infected uh, revision knee replacement. We uh, put a static spacer in, and I worked with a plastic surgeon colleague of mine uh, to raise a medial gastrocnemius flap to cover the area uh, where he had a soft tissue defect in the front of his knee. Uh, We used a skin graft over the top of that, and um, we covered this and let it heal. All of our tests and markers and aspirations indicated that we were successful at resolving his infection. Um, we took him back many months later when his soft tissues we felt were mature uh, for a reimplantation. At this time, I worked with the same plastic surgeon who raised the medial gastroc flap. Um, I took out the spacer, I put in a hinged knee prosthesis, and the plastic surgeon and I together closed his incision back. That's the picture you see here on the left side of the screen. Um, I scrubbed out of the case just before my plastic surgeon colleague put in skin sutures, and this was under no tension. Uh, The case went um, very, very smoothly. All of his cultures from this case were negative, indicating or confirming that we uh, were successful in resolving the infection. We covered this with two AquaCell dressings, uh, lined up end to end, kept him in the hospital for about a week. When we discharged him to a nursing home, There were no issues. We thought his incision was healing well, um, and uh, we thought that we had finally, after years, gotten this patient to a successful outcome. He called me a few weeks later and said, Dr. Cooper, I think it was a weekend, uh, an evening on a weekend, he said, Dr. Cooper, my incision does not look good. There's stuff draining out of it, and I said, you know, right away come back to the emergency room. and." Uh, He came back, and this is what he looked like when he showed up. Wound necrosis, erythema, uh, there was purulent material draining out of this, and um, obviously the last thing that we wanted to see. Uh, When we cultured the material that was inside, uh, it wasn't MRSA, actually. Um, Indeed, we were successful at uh, eradicating the MRSA infection. Um, This was actually a gram-negative organism that he'd never had before in the previous three years that he picked up somewhere between the operating room and his hospital stay and his subacute rehab. And we ended up making one attempt to try to salvage this and amputating him about a week after, the, after he showed up again. And it was this case that I took care of in 2014 that really stuck out in my mind. Um, because we went from something that was so successful in the image on your left to something that we amputated about a month later. And I couldn't help but think that if we had gotten that incision to heal reliably, leaving the operating room, he would not have been in the same position. So this is when I started looking at different dressings beyond the Cell LAG. And when I started thinking about this, um, you know, I realized that most of my patients were doing really well with that silver impregnated hydrofiber dressing, but the high risk patients, those with the risk factors that you see on the screen were the ones that were still having trouble and it was in this population that I began to use negative pressure over the closed incision. And this is not a new concept, this is something that's been around in orthopedic surgery since the mid-1990s. The first publication on incisional vacs uh, was in 2006, and these were introduced to provide a clean and dry wound environment uh, in the immediate post-operative period to these primarily closed, uh, surgical incisions, uh, typically in orthopedic trauma patients, um, who are at risk for wound complications. Um, gosh, sounds a lot like the patients that I was, I was still struggling with. Here's an example of the technique used in the initial 2006 publication uh, from uh, Dr. Gamal, looking at it in orthopedic trauma patients and also in um, adult reconstruction patients, uh, with these complex hip revision surgeries that I'm finding great utility uh, of this technique today. So modern negative pressure designs were introduced um, from these experiences with these kind of do-it-yourself incisional vacs. And with the disposable units, the design has really been optimized um, uh, for some of these specific units uh, based on a lot of basic science and laboratory and animal studies um, to optimize a consistent delivery of negative pressure. Um, They've also been made easy to use, um, so very easy to apply in the operating room. Um, And one of the biggest benefits of these is that they're portable and they can transition home with the patient. So I can operate on a patient, keep them overnight in the hospital, discharge them home the next day, and that obese diabetic patient is still getting negative pressure therapy delivered to their incision for seven days at home. Uh, We don't need to keep them in the hospital like we once did um, uh, for this incision management. I'm gonna spend a little bit of time on the on the basic science of how this works because it's important, and I think it's an important distinguishing feature uh, amongst some of the options that are available. Um, so there are a number of potential benefits of how this works, and we're not quite sure exactly which of these makes the biggest difference, but I wanted to take you guys through um, some of the basic science literature to try to understand this a bit better. Uh, I'm gonna start with this study that looks at how these devices diminish the lateral tension at the incision. So we know when we cut into the skin and cut through the subcutaneous tissue and down to the fascia, at the end of the case, we rely on suture and sometimes staples to pull that incision edge back to itself. And we rely on those sutures to hold that still while the wound heals. And that's fine for certain incision uh, locations, but for things like uh, you know, in front of a joint, uh, for instance, in front of the knee joint, where I'm asking the patient to bend their knee, we're actually putting tension directly across that incision. And that tension across the incision is fighting those sutures and pulling and creating an environment for incision healing that's probably not perfect. So this study shows that when you apply a negative pressure dressing with a sponge on top of the incision and you evacuate the air, Not only does that sponge suck down against the skin, but it also brings those incision edges closer together and diminishes the lateral tension by about 50% compared to a a standard dressing uh, without that negative pressure. And you can see the finite element model analysis on the right side of the screen that shows this happens not only at the skin surface, but also in the subcutaneous tissue as well. In addition, this depends directly on how wide that foam is. So, the wider the foam, the greater um, the reduction in lateral tension, and that's why some of these um, pre-made, disposable negative pressure units have such a wide piece of foam to really help to counteract what you see here, which is the um, which is that tension. Um, so, this is a, a morbidly obese. Uh, anterior Approach Total Hip Patient that was referred to me with an infection. I, I did a one-stage exchange on her, and you can see when I put one of these negative pressure dressings on the front of her hip postoperatively, it really helps to splint or stabilize that incision where she's otherwise going to see a lot of motion um, as the incision crosses these various creases underneath her panis. Um, negative pressure on the skin surface also increases perfusion. Um, We know that when we apply uh, a suction to the skin, it turns pink, and this is increased blood flow. Uh, This has been seen both in in basic science and in clinical studies. And this increased perfusion happens over about 20 minutes, um, and then it reaches this steady state where it stays at a higher level of perfusion, which can only be a good thing for patients with impaired microvascular flow, like smokers or like diabetics. Um, where we want to deliver more blood flow to the incision to try to get it to heal. Um, This is a good uh, animal study. This is a porcine study looking at the benefits of negative pressure therapy compared to a dry dry dressing. And you can see paraspinal incisions made uh, over the back of, uh, of these pigs. In this particular study, they applied negative pressure for five days or a standard dry dressing for five days. If you look at what happened five days later, the image on your left is from the dry dressing, and you can see a healthy-looking five-day-old incision with an appropriate amount of swelling with some sutures that are fairly taut, um, maybe a tiny little dehiscence in the incision um, toward the right side of that picture, but overall a um, healthy-looking five-day-old incision. When you look at the image on the right that was treated with negative pressure for the same five days you can see a much more mature-looking incision, less swelling, um, a greater degree of epithelialization at the incision edge, and these sutures at five days look like they could almost come out. And it's this change or this difference in swelling that I think a lot of people, myself included, who use these dressings see on a very regular basis, a basis in our patients uh, when we use these. Um, we also see... Um, Uh, reduction in the hematoma or seroma accumulation underneath that incision. And this is an animal model that validates that. This uh, compares negative pressure dressings to the standard of care in transverse incisions made over the back of pigs. Here in this model there's an eight centimeter incision made. In the subcutaneous space, the investigators scooped out a big chunk of subcutaneous fat. To intentionally do exactly what we try to avoid during surgery uh, which is create a big pocket of dead space underneath the incision um, when my residents or fellows do this in surgery it's, it's something that we would consider suboptimal um, but here they did that intentionally um, because they wanted a space where fluid could potentially accumulate they treated one of these with um, negative pressure they treated one of these with a dry dressing and they found that after four days, a much greater volume of fluid accumulated in the space underneath the dry dressing, and a much smaller volume accumulated under that negative pressure dressing. So, why did this happen? They went back and they looked again, and they found that when they closed these incisions, in this second study, they sprinkled some radio labeled uh, nanospheres that were tagged with various radioisotopes in the incision. So, they could see where the fluid was going. When they did that and tracked these radio labeled nanospheres, they found that number one, um, none of the fluid was escaping from the incision into the dressing or into the canister. So, it wasn't like the negative pressure was sucking the fluid out of the dead space. What was actually happening was in the areas that were treated with negative pressure. Those particular radio-tagged nanospheres were migrating into the central lymphatic system, uh, into the inguinal and axillary lymph nodes, at a much greater degree than the areas treated with dry dressings. And the investigators concluded from this that negative pressure sitting on the skin surface of the back of these pigs caused an activation of the lymphatic system, which provided an avenue of egressive fluid away from the surgical site. Um, and this might explain the, the decrease in swelling that we see under these dressings and the lower rates of seroma or hematoma accumulation. Um, this has been seen in clinical trials. This is a prospective randomized controlled trial from Germany showing exactly that. When patients had a total hip and they were treated with a dry dressing, most of them had a small subcutaneous hematoma. But when they were treated with a negative pressure dressing, less than half of them had a subcutaneous seroma or hematoma. Furthermore, when they did an ultrasound of that subcutaneous space, they found that the hematomas that were there in the dry dressing group were of a larger size than those under the negative pressure dressing. If you go back to this study of the animals that were treated with negative pressure for five days, at five days, the dressings were taken off, um, but they let these animals live for six weeks. And then, at six weeks, they harvested samples of the incision uh, from underneath the dry dressing, which at this point was well healed. They harvested samples of the incision that were underneath the negative pressure dressings, which were also well healed, and they also harvested normal skin samples that had never had an incision. They performed mechanical testing of these of these pieces of um, tissue and they found that the areas that were underneath the negative pressure dressings were recovering their normal mechanical properties at a faster rate than those that were treated with a dry dressing. So at six weeks, although these negative pressure skin samples weren't normal, they were stronger uh, in terms of peak stress, peak strain, and strain energy density than the areas treated underneath the dry dressing. And I want to note and and reemphasize that these weren't treated for six weeks, they were just treated for the first five days. But at six weeks, the mechanical properties were returning more quickly. And I'll conclude the basic science review looking at uh, some histology, also from uh, these same uh, animals, that shows that underneath the negative pressure dressing, the zone of scar is much narrower than the zone of scar underneath plain dry dressings. So if you look back and sort of understand the summary of how negative pressure works from clinical, I'm sorry, from uh, from benchtop laboratory and animal testing um you can kind of look at these as those that have an immediate impact as soon as we push the on button in these negative pressure dressings we're seeing decrease in lateral tension increase in appositional strength and increase in perfusion to the skin edges but over the first several days after negative pressure is turned on we're seeing decreased edema less swelling lower rates of hematoma and seroma and an activation or an increase in the lymphatic environment, uh, involvement. And then after we've taken these dressings off uh, after the first week, if we follow these incisions further, we're seeing improved incision quality, greater mechanical strength, um, and some positive changes in histology and histomorphometry. So I think you know we're not sure which of these is responsible for the benefits that we see with negative pressure, but it's probably some combination of all those. That's some background, and I think it's important to put in context to try to understand the clinical studies that have been out there. And um, since when I started using this in 2014, there's just been an abundance of literature published looking at negative pressure over closed incisions. I'm really gonna focus on the orthopedic part of that, uh, uh, given uh, your interests. Um, And I'll start with um, some of the early orthopedic trauma studies, I've already shown one. But this is one published in 2010. Uh, looking at patients who underwent surgery um, at Wake Forest University for acetabular fractures. They looked retrospectively at a nine-year period of uh, about 300 patients who had acetabular fracture surgery. The majority of these were treated with negative pressure dressings, believe it or not, over this time. Um, And only 66 of these were treated with a standard uh, dry dressing. But when they went back and looked at their nine-year collective experience, they found that the dry dressing group had a 6% rate of wound infection compared to the negative pressure group that had just a 1% rate of wound infection, uh, which was statistically significant and really kind of um, validated their historical approach to why they were doing negative pressure dressings. Um, This is a study that came out a couple years afterward, um, and this study is also looking at an orthopedic trauma population. Um, published in 2012 in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. This is a prospective randomized control trial of um, about 250 patients who came to a level one trauma center with a high-energy plateau, pilon, or calcaneus fracture. When these patients were indicated for surgery, uh, they were randomized to um, either a standard dressing Uh, or a a negative pressure dressing over the closed incision for the first two or three days. And what they found was that when they looked at the infection rate in the dry dressing group, this is a pretty high risk group. Um, So high energy trauma, lots of soft tissue swelling, not a lot of soft tissue coverage in these three locations. So they had a 19% rate of wound infection in the dry dressing group. But in this same population with the same injuries when they were randomized to a negative pressure dressing, that rate dropped by 50% down to 10%, uh, which was statistically significant. They also looked at wound dehiscence, and they found that they had a 16% rate of wound dehiscence in the control group, but one that was uh, cut in half with incisional VAX down to 8%. This is an interesting analysis that their data um, and the purpose of this um, you know, post-doc analysis was to look at cost, which is on all of our minds um, you know, in today's healthcare system. And this kind of cost analysis is helpful at understanding the cost effectiveness of this kind of intervention. Um, we know incisional uh, negative pressure therapy is not inexpensive, especially when compared to gauze, but we know that treatment of one of these ex- infected lower extremity trauma patients can be quite expensive, as they need additional surgery, oftentimes several additional surgeries, increased post-operative wound care, uh, oftentimes IV antibiotics for an extended period of time. So this used the Thompson cost data, uh, which put the average cost of one of these infections at $64,000. And it asked the question, if the investigators had used negative pressure dressings in all of their patients up front. And if they were successful at avoiding half of the the infections, would they have spent more money on negative pressure dressings for everybody or would they have saved money by preventing half of those expensive infections? And if you run those numbers, they found that they would have saved about $7,000 on average for every single patient in the study by decreasing their infection rate by 50% that's including the cost of all of those um, more expensive negative pressure dressings. So with that, I wanted to move into total joint replacement. And um, this is an interesting area because it's come a long way uh, since 2014. When I began using these in 2014, there was really no literature to to support their use uh, at all. And I was kind of banking on uh, evidence from other surgical specialties and orthopedic trauma of having those same kinds of benefits translate into the orthopedic uh, arthroplasty population, and it wasn't until 2016 that we published our first experience with this, which was really the first arthroplasty data to provide a clinical um, uh, uh, utility of these dressings. So, in this study, which we published in Journal of Arthroplasty, we uh, looked back at 140 of my own patients who underwent re- reoperation for uh, their hip or knee replacement Uh, about half of these were aseptic cases about 40 percent were treatment of an infection and about 10 percent were trauma cases uh, treating a periprosthetic fracture this study compared my historical experience using um, these uh, antimicrobial hydrofiber dressings uh, that i talked about as our standard of care and they compared that to the incisional negative pressure dressings that I began using in 2014. Um, and one interesting point that is that I, important to make is that when I started using these in 2014, as you can see, I was still using a lot of my standard of care dressings. And I was really not sure which patients would benefit from the negative pressure dressings. So I was using them very selectively in the highest risk patients that I was most worried about. Um, and still treating most of my patients with the the standard dressings initially. When we looked at baseline demographics, there was clearly a difference in that, indeed, I was using the negative pressure dressings in the high-risk group, and my standard risk group overall, uh, I'm sorry, my standard dressings overall had a lower risk profile in the kinds of surgery they were getting. So even with that little bit of bias against the negative pressure dressings being effective, um, I saw uh, big differences in my rates of wound complication and surgical site infections in favor of negative pressure dressings. I also saw non-statistical decreases in reoperation rates and deep infection rates uh, in my negative pressure dressing population. We did a follow-up study two years later um, focusing in on one of the highest risk groups undergoing revision surgery, which is those treated with a periprosthetic fracture. And this is a particularly challenging problem to treat. It's one that's increasing in frequency. And and one of the reasons this is such a challenging problem to treat is that these cases are associated with a high rate of baseline complications, specifically uh, infectious complications, where uh, a number of different studies put the rate of deep infection between 16 and 26%. So I got together with three of my colleagues uh, who also treated periprosthetic fractures. Over a six year period, all four of us switched uh, from the dressing on the left to the dressing on the right. So we looked back at our collective experience treating these patients, and what we found were across our collective experience tremendous improvements in our wound complication rate, reoperation rate, and deep infection rate um, when we switched to these negative pressure dressings. We had a 25% rate of uh, reoperation and deep infection, and when we switched to these negative pressure dressings, that rate effectively went to zero. I wish I could say, you know, years later that it's still zero, and it's not still zero, but it, um, but it's certainly a, a, um, a lot lower uh, than 25%. This is probably the best study that's been done in arthroplasty, looking at negative pressure dressings. Uh, And this just came out earlier this year. This is a study from Cleveland Clinic. Same kind of question that we asked in our very first study uh, in hip and knee patients. Basically, um, how does a negative pressure dressing compare to our standard of care in patients undergoing revision hip or knee replacement? The difference is the methodology. Here, the surgeons from Cleveland Clinic designed a prospective randomized control trial. Uh, looking at 160 high-risk patients scheduled for revision uh, joint replacement over a two-and-a-half-year period. And what they found was that uh, when patients got the negative pressure dressing, they had significantly lower rates of wound complications and reoperations. operations um, You can see the reoperation rate dropped from 12.5% down to 2.5%, um, just with introduction of a different dressing type. So I think at this point in 2019, there's there's good data to really support um, using these dressings for revision arthroplasty patients. Um, But what about primary patients? And um, I think we still have some work to do to to best understand when we should use these, uh, but there's clearly a role. In 2017, a group from Toledo, Ohio, published their experience using um, closed incision negative pressure therapy in a prospective group of patients. This is a prospective study of 600 patients undergoing primary elective hip or knee replacement. This was a consecutive cohort. Nobody was excluded. Uh, 400 were treated with gauze. 200 were treated with um, a Pravena negative pressure dressing. And the investigators here found significant improvements with the negative pressure dressing uh, with respect to incisional complications, surgical site infection, and um, and those two things are probably not surprising, given everything that we've talked about. But the one surprising thing in their study is that they found a decrease in postoperative pain in patients treated with a negative pressure dressing compared to the dry dressings. Um, and they weren't exactly sure why this happened. Um, this has been seen in other surgical subspecialties, specifically in patients under- undergoing cesarean section, uh, having less pain when they had a negative pressure dressing on their incision. Um, But this is thought to be due to the mechanical stabilization effect of these kinds of dressings. We looked at this in 2018, and we found that uh, when we started using this in our practice in primary patients, um, that we were able to risk stratify. And we really wanted to look at patients specifically who were at a higher risk of these kinds of complications. So which of these risk factors made a difference? We went back to our um, historical study and specifically tried to isolate which patient comorbidities correlated with wound complication rates. And we were able to construct a risk stratification algorithm where patients were assigned different points based on their various risk factors. And what we found in our historical study was that when the patients had a risk score of greater than or equal to two, using this algorithm, they had a significantly higher rate of wound complication rates. So beginning in 2017, uh, I uh, started to risk stratify my primary hip and knee replacement patients to what I called a low-risk group um, that I continued to treat with my standard of care dressing, or a high-risk group that had a risk score of greater than or equal to two. Um, and in this group, I, started, I was, I began using negative pressure therapy. And in doing this, I was able to bring that high-risk group's complication rate down to a statistically equivalent rate uh, to the low-risk group just by changing the dressing. And if you look at this from another way, if you look at our improvements in uh, wound complication rates from our historical baseline, 2012, 2013, 2014, in 2017, we began to risk stratify patients we were able to improve our overall incisional complication rate significantly from 2012 to 2017 um, with introduction of risk stratification for dressing selection. And you can appropriately criticize this and say, well, gosh, lots of things could have changed between 2012 and 2017 that might have explained this, and I would say you're absolutely right. So we looked specifically at the different cohorts, and we looked at the low-risk patients historically And we compared the low-risk patients historically to the low-risk patients currently, and we saw that there was not a big change in wound complication rates in the low-risk group. Here we were using the same dressings in 2012 as we're using in 2017. Um, So while our rates did improve a little bit, they didn't improve statistically uh, in a meaningful way. But when we looked at our high-risk group, you can see there was a tremendous improvement in our wound complication rates, and the only thing that changed here that was different um, than the low-risk patients is that we added a different dressing to the high-risk group starting in 2017, uh, which made a big difference in our uh, wound complication rates in this high-risk group. So a lot of stuff's been done, and um, it's Kind of cool because uh, some of the uh, national and international organizations that look at these things have started to take notice of this data. And the International Consensus on Orthopedic Infection in 2018 um, made a statement for the first time um, uh, describing that prophylactic um, vacuum assisted incisional dressings appear to be a reasonable option for improved wound healing and for decreasing the infection rate in orthopedic patients who are at risk for such complications. And otherwise, incisional VACs make sense in high-risk patients. And even, uh, I think even more impressive, and this is a a more recent development, is uh, the FDA uh, recently came up with a a statement on this. And this is a bit of background. The FDA has a a process called the de novo process, which is a, um, and they've recently changed this to, to provide a pathway in order to classify novel medical devices. Now incisional negative pressure therapies um, in these portable devices has been out in the market since around 2010, Um, but only in 2019 uh, did one particular negative pressure device go through the de novo process, specifically for a new indication. And the FDA recognized a new class of negative pressure devices specifically aimed at reducing the risk of surgical site infection, uh, which was an, a, uh, an indication not previously open to um, you know, the broader class of, of incisional negative pressure therapy devices. Um, but in 2019, uh, the FDA uh, granted a de novo indication specifically for the Provena 125 and 125+, Plus. Uh, therapy units um, to reduce the incidence of seroma and in high-risk patients uh, to reduce the incidence of uh, uh, superficial surgical site infection. Um, And and this stands alone in in its own category through the FDA's de novo um, uh, classification process. So, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes on some tips and tricks of using negative pressure therapy. Uh, number one, can you use this on a draining wound on the floor or in the office um, in a patient who presents with late drainage after surgery? Uh, in short, it's suboptimal to have not done it in the operating room, but assuming you didn't do it in the operating room and you have this, I, I think it's still quite a bit better than um, than just watching the incision drain. Um, and the study that supports this is uh, from the Rothman Clinic in Philadelphia published in 2013. Showing that when they did this in patients on day three or day four or day five, most commonly, they were able to resolve incisional drainage without problems about 75% of the time. What about drains? Uh, you know, I think drains are something that some of us use, some of us don't use. Uh, I use them sparingly, but when I use them, I think about the drains managing the deep space and I think about the negative pressure dressings is managing the superficial and subcutaneous spaces. So I think of these as having different purposes. I don't think that the negative pressure dressing does away with what a drain would have done. The only thing that I do when, uh, differently when using a drain, uh, along with the negative pressure dressing, is that I want to tunnel that drain further away from the incision, so that the footprint uh, of the incisional negative pressure therapy is not disrupted when the drain is pulled a day or two after surgery. Dressing removal, uh, right now the on-label indications from the FDA indicate up to seven days of continued use, um, at which point um, uh, the um, dressing uh, from an on-label perspective should be removed. Um, I will say that in my own experience and practice, I I try to leave these on longer than that in an off-label way, uh, because i found greater utility leaving these on longer uh, than seven days, but that's certainly being used uh, in a way that's inconsistent with, um, with on-label approval. Um, I wanted to give a few examples of use of these in my practice. I use these in high-risk uh, primary surgeries. This is an example of a patient uh, with multiple risk factors um, like lupus, uh, high-dose steroids, on immunosuppressive medications. She has diabetes and she's got a BMI of 51. She needs a total hit to keep working. Using the risk stratification algorithm, uh, her risk score is going to be way above 2. So this is a patient who was treated with uh, a negative pressure dressing for five days. When it came off, you can see how um, beautifully her incision has healed with no incisional complications. Uh, Toward the bottom of her incision, um, there is already mature-looking wound healing. Uh, At the top, there's a little bit of uh, puckering of the incision, but no drainage. Uh, no um, surgical dehiscence, dehiscence, and she healed uneventfully. I also use negative pressure therapy for uh, patients undergoing revision surgery. This is a good example of a patient who came to me with um, uh, an uh, open wound over the front of his patella tendon with a staph infection uh, after having had six attempts to treat an infection since his original total knee replacement in January 2016. So he'd been on the cycle for about a year of failed attempts at infection management. I took him to the operating room, um, explanted his total knee replacement, put in a static spacer. We're just able to um, stretch that incision closed under a fair bit of tension. We put a negative pressure dressing on. In this particular patient, we left it on for two weeks. And you can see how well that incision healed over the next eight weeks after being managed with two weeks of negative pressure therapy and no motion and IV antibiotics. I took him back to the operating room at 10 weeks uh, for removal of his spacer and placement of uh, one of these hinged knee replacement devices. At this point, I did a gastrocnemius flap uh, with a skin graft, put a negative pressure dressing directly on top of this um, rotational muscle flap and skin graft, and let him heal over the next um, uh, several weeks with this. You can see him here uh, in the video at six weeks, having already regained uh, excellent function of his knee with full extension and flexion to 90 degrees. Um, He's now about two and a half years out from surgery and continues to do quite well. He's to do quite well. My final indication for negative pressure therapy is for trauma patients. Um, and this is the kind of trauma that I typically see. This is a 67 year old gentleman with a BMI of 37, but otherwise healthy. Um, he came to me with this Vancouver B2 periprosthetic femur fracture and was indicated for revision surgery. Um, we got to him the next day, we were able to get uh, new fixation in his femur, we were able to wrap his fractured segments around the new prosthesis but he had so much swelling from his injury and from surgery, I was actually unable to get his fascia closed. And we were just barely able to stretch the skin and the subcutaneous tissue closed. So when we uh, ended surgery, I normally would have put an AquaCell over his incision, but in him, because we had it, we used that negative pressure dressing. Um, And we were fortunate to do so because The lack of fascial closure caused him to have a lot of drainage from his incision uh, through the dressing and into the canister. And and he drained over a liter of blood out of his thigh over the first week and continued to drain uh, even at a week uh, and beyond. But because I still had the same dressing on there, because I wasn't changing saturated dressings multiple times a day um, in the hospital, um, we were able to let this dressing stay on and finally stopped draining at 12 days post-operatively. When he stopped draining at 12 days, I left it on for two more days and took it off at day 14. And his incision, I didn't take a picture of it then, uh, but I took a picture of it when he came back for his final follow-up. And you can see a beautifully healed incision, uh, no issues with incisional healing. And this is the kind of gentleman that was very fortunate to avoid a reoperation, and and likely avoid a deep infection from poor incision healing Um, And I would say largely because we had this technology available to us uh, when I treated him. Uh, In the last couple of minutes, I'm going to transition into um, the next generation of incision management. And and these are products that are just becoming available. This is a a new arthroform-type dressing meant to be applied to the anterior surface of a knee that extends the envelope of the benefits of negative pressure therapy over a much wider area, It's built in the same proven technology as our previous incision management systems that I've I've been talking about uh, throughout this presentation. And this is an example of one with a video showing one in a healthy human subject who didn't have surgery, um, showing how this conforms around the front of a knee and can allow flexion and extension without difficulty. I was part of a Team that evaluated this um, in the spring of 2019. At six orthopedic centers, we evaluated this in 55 patients. Um, and here are some uh, images from patients who had knee replacement surgery or revision knee surgery uh, across the country with these devices uh, in place and fitting them well. I'll talk a little bit about my experience with this. Um, this is a patient that I uh, used one on initially. This is a lady that was treated for a displaced patella fracture. I applied one of these area management dressings uh, to the front of her knee at the end of surgery. And this is her when she came back at 10 days with a beautifully healed incision, really pretty minimal soft tissue swelling um, and almost no pain. She went on to heal uneventfully. And this is another patient, a 62-year-old obese lady with a very different kind of a, a, a problem an infected distal femur replacement. Um, I treated her with an antibiotic spacer. This was about a four hour surgery to take that out and put a, put a spacer in. She was treated with one of these Arthroform area management devices and when she came back at day 13, uh, I took this off and you can see how little swelling she has in her leg with a beautifully healed incision. No pain, minimal swelling. We removed her dressing. We're able to get her reimplanted um, about eight to nine weeks post-operatively to a new distal femur replacement, uh, and she's doing quite well um, about six months post-op. Finally, this is a, a patient undergoing a primary knee replacement, uh, bilateral knee arthritis. We're staging these knee replacements. I started on the right side in April. Uh, this is a patient who got one of these Arthroform area management dressings. I kept it on for two weeks and in those two weeks she was at home she's one of the rare knee replacement patients who had effectively no pain Uh, she came back we took the dressing off at day 15 Uh, her incision was well healed she had range of motion that was acceptable for this early time and when she came back at about um at about five to six weeks um, she said this was much easier than expected she's ready to do the next one She's got motion from zero to 115 degrees without, um, without any incisional problems. So this is a relatively new technology and I think still a lot um, that needs to be looked at and investigated, but it does hold promise uh, for managing a larger area than just the incision itself uh, with negative pressure therapy. And we hope to participate in some more studies uh, as time goes forward. So I'd like to thank everybody uh, for your attention and time. And you will now be directed back to the landing page uh, to complete the post-test and the evaluation. And if you choose to do so, you can download and print your certificate. Thank you very much.